Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. I notice myself and in our culture, emotions are shifting. I think the trajectory for many has been one of anxiousness to annoyance and maybe even anger as seen in some of the protests happening now. Sadly, we may also be seeing this underlying annoyance getting displaced with more irritation with those we're living with as well. So today in our One Big Story series, we once again look at a story when Israel was also in a time of uncertainty, fear, and in some ways confinement because of a long drought covering the land. And a key question for the Israelites and for us is, what's the purpose of this season? What is God wanting to do in you through this time? In many ways, this has been a season of deconstruction, a time to tear some things down before we get to build again. And although not as intense, this season has brought back some memories of a time of deconstruction in my life 20 years ago when I had to lay a lot of things down like career and some relationships. I mean, it felt like a lot of things were dying. And even though I know God was in aspects of it, I was sad and uncertain. And during that time, I heard a song by Sarah Groves about God's faithfulness that helped me reframe the changes that this kind of season brings. The phrase that resonated most with me was what she said is how it feels less like a casket and more like a womb. I know that could sound a bit dramatic, but it helped me move from feeling like things were being torn down in my life, taken away, to see how God was preparing me for something to be born, like a womb. So others of you may connect more with the image of a cocoon, like maybe feeling confined or trapped, but the purpose God has in this, in this season for each of us is to help prepare us for more, perhaps to fly. So however we may be feeling during the season, we all still need to grapple with this question. What is God wanting to do in me? What are the things that I need to lay down so that I can take hold of something new in order to be ready for what's ahead? So last week we talked about King Asa from the southern kingdom of Judah, who ended his reign poorly. Mm -hmm. Today we continue in 1 Kings looking at the northern kingdom of Israel, who had a succession of bad, ungodly kings. 19 of them, spanning over 200 years, culminating with the one who the Bible tells us did more evil than any of those before him, Ahab. Now, Ahab married a cute little thing from the neighboring pagan nation of Sidon named Jezebel, and she brought into Israel her favorite gods, Baal and Asherah, promptly setting up temples for them. The people were so far away from God that they went along with her primarily because Baal and Asherah promised prosperity and protection during a difficult time. But worship of these gods became increasingly dark. They began to practice child sacrifice. Jezebel even slaughtered hundreds of prophets and priests of God and in their place set up hundreds of her own prophets and priests. And into the situation, God sends Elijah, whose name means the Lord is God. I mean, his name declares Elijah's purpose. The primary scene in Elijah's life revolves around the showdown with the prophets of Baal to determine who the real God is. So before we see the showdown, we want to step back and see how God prepares Elijah so we too can gain some understanding of how God may be preparing us. In 1 Kings, Now Elijah the Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now one of the main Baals was known as the Rainmaker. 
God said through Elijah that from this day forward it will not rain except by the word of Elijah. I mean, this is a direct confrontation of Baal saying, you don't control this, God does. And this is also, though, a death sentence for Israel, because with no rain, crops won't grow and people will starve. And for three and a half years, no rain comes. The lesson God teaches Elijah is a major lesson God seeks to teach everyone who follows him, and that's the complete dependence on God. I think most of us would say, I depend upon God. But God was wanting to make sure Elijah fully understood complete dependence. So what does that look like for Elijah and for us? Mm -hmm. Like most of us, Elijah had always taken care of himself, gotten his own food, worked for a living. But then God invited Elijah to absolutely depend on him in a different way for basic needs of food and water. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. The ravens actually would bring him bread and meat in the morning and night, which proves, I think, that Christians should eat meat, because whenever God chooses the menu in the Bible, it always includes meat. Eh, maybe that's not the no. main point of passage. The place was mm -hmm. called the Brook of Cherith. Cherith in Hebrew literally means to cut down. God seems to be emphasizing, I want to cut off anything or remove anything you normally rely on, even your own ability to take care of your basic needs. And I'll show you how you can depend upon me completely. Now, as we read through the story, we'll give several points highlighting what complete dependence looks like. And so this is the first point. If dependence is objective, weakness is an advantage. Now, we value our strengths. They, they're gifts from God. Yet we need to also be aware of how our strengths um, can be places where we're likely to forget God. And the verse it goes on to say, And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So now we see that it goes from bad to worse. The brook dries up and the ravens with their daily rations of beef jerky quit coming to visit. And But look what happens next. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now Elijah has no food, no job, and now God is asking him to walk a hundred miles through enemy territory to the wicked pagan queen of Israel, Jezebel's hometown. And guess who the main god in Sidon is? It's Baal. And so in this enemy city, during a famine, God sends Elijah to a poor pagan widow woman. He goes there, sees a widow picking up sticks, and asks her to make him something to eat. And she says, well, I can't. I have just enough oil and flour to make one small cake for me and my son, and then we're going to die of starvation. But Elijah tells her if she does what he says, God will keep filling her jug of oil until rain comes again. The widow chooses to make Elijah food and experiences God keeping her oil and flour from never running out throughout the entire famine. So what's God doing here in both Elijah and the widow? I mean, he's showing through a full-blown miracle of constantly multiplying this oil and flour that they can trust God to take care of them. That for every problem that they face, God is going to bring a miracle. So for Elijah and the widow, lesson learned, right? God is able to infinitely provide in any circumstance, even in the drought in the middle of an enemy village. Mm -hmm. But then verse 17 says this, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. 
And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Uh, Craig Rochelle says the story reminds him of the little bird flying south for the winter, but he got a late start, so he got caught in a snowstorm. And the storm was so bad that ice formed on his wings and he couldn't fly, so crash landing, unable to get back up. He thought, great, now I'm going to freeze to death. And then suddenly a cow came and took a dump on him. At first, the little bird said, this has gone from bad to worse. But then he realizes the manure has warmed his wings and is thawing them out. And he got so excited that he started to chirp and sing. But his chirping attracted a cat who comes and eats it. So we can learn three lessons from this story, he says. Lesson one, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. And lesson two, not everyone who digs you out is your friend. And lesson three, when you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful to keep your little chirper shut. Okay. <laughs> but seriously, yeah. hasn't this woman been through enough? I mean, the woman's son dies, yet watch how she responds. She asks, is it because of my past sins? And Elijah, prophet of God, has the same why has this happened question. So he goes up to God asking, God, I don't get it. Can you help this woman? Notice they don't blame God or try to explain it away with some easy pat answer. They just go to God asking for help. And the next scene is so interesting. I, I would say even mysterious. Elijah puts the dead boy in his own bed and he stretches over the boy and three times he prays, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Three times Elijah didn't give up. And that's another lesson. Persevere in prayer. Because Elijah learned how not to give up in prayer, which was going to be really critical later when he would pray for the rain to come. God showed Elijah that he has power to do something that no other God can do. God can raise people from the dead. Now we have examples of how God brought people back from the dead, but Elijah hadn't. He prays for the unbelievable, the impossible, and Elijah is the first to see God's resurrection ability in the scriptures. God has power over death. Baal could not touch death. Elijah is learning to trust God not only for food and water, but for life itself. Elijah knows that he can completely depend upon God. We see how Elijah made one of the most important transitions we can ever make in life. First Kings 17.1 shows us that Elijah went from being Elijah the Tishbite to 17.24, where Elijah is now identified simply as a man of God. He's gone from being defined by where he's from to being defined by the one to whom he belongs. And God wants to take you and I to that same place where we begin to define ourselves by the one to whom we belong. Have you gone through that transition? How do you define yourself? What gives you confidence as you look into the future? Your strengths, your money you have in the bank account, your earning potential, your talents, your looks? Or is it your confidence in God that he has plans for you, that wherever he leads you, he'll provide for you? And so you look into the future saying, God, where you tell me to go, I'll go, because I know whatever you assign me to do, you will provide all that is needed. You know, from our vantage point, we can see how fully in control God is in Elijah's life. But to Elijah on the ground, like probably didn't feel that way. But in the same way, we can learn from that. God is watching over your life to a greater degree than you realize. 
He's got plans for you. He chose you to be part of his plan. He even knows when a hair of your head falls from your scalp. Like, in fact, when you think about it, he's got more wrapped up in your life than even you do because he gave his life for you. He has made a greater investment in your life than anything that you could have ever done. Now, we know that God is not looking for superhuman people to use on earth. He's looking for ordinary people that know how to unconditionally surrender and have extraordinary confidence in him. Now we see Elijah prepare for the showdown next. In 1 Kings 18, 20, it says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? I mean, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. That's an interesting question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. How long will you limp between two opinions? You are limping between two opinions is kind of an ancient version of saying sitting on the fence or wavering. And as an old farmer friend of mine said so eloquently in church one day, if you sit on the fence, you're going to get racked. I'm so sorry. get off the fence. I'm sorry. <laughs> Either God is who he said he is yeah. or he isn't. True. If he isn't, we're wasting our time. But if he is, then that's a different story. If we believe God is true, the only logical response is to completely submit our lives to him. If we believe God is God, yet we don't give him our time, we do with it whatever we want, there's a disconnect there. For some of you, you've been living in this no man's land of disconnect for way too long. Why don't you just go all in and give your life to God today? You can do that with one of our prayer team by requesting prayer at the end of the service at questvineyard.org slash live, or to, uh, there are two ways there to receive prayer there, or, or email or message me and let me know you're making the decision because we want to encourage you in that decision. Now, one of the main things I hear from many of you is how your season, this season has led you to re-examine family priorities. See, if we believe God is God over our time, yet we hyper-schedule our kids to make sure they get all the right extracurricular activities, and as a result, forgo time for family and church, there's a disconnect with our faith. If we believe God is God, but we look to others for approval, we sell out to please others. Then I'd say, if that's your God, then go for it. Try to get all the approval you can get. If appearance is your God, then serve it. Get surgery, tuck it, tighten it, tan it, whatever you need to do. If romance is your God, then go anywhere to find it. Leave your marriage if you must. If you feel like you're getting divorced, do it. Forget your responsibility to your kids. Go all in and find a good romance. If you feel like you'd have the best romance with your best friend's spouse, then go for it. Now, please don't no. do any of those things. Mm -hmm. There are so many things more important. But if we follow these beliefs to their logical end, that's the kind of thinking and behavior we get. Elijah throws down the gauntlet and he challenges them, right? He quit limping between two opinions. Make a decision. And it goes on to say, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. And now if we imagine this to be like a major league game, this is Elijah challenging them on their turf in their stadium. Mount Carmel was dedicated to Baal, so this is their stadium. Elijah goes to them with this test. It was like he was playing right into their hands. Because according to their epic, they believed that Baal rode on, a th on thunderclouds and sent lightning. 
what Elijah is doing here is saying, okay, let's play the game at your stadium and play to your strength because your God is the God who sends lightning. So let's set up a sacrifice and whoever's God answers by fire, they're going to win. God prepared Elijah. He's not intimidated, challenges them on their on turf. He's on the offensive. And I admire this so much because in our culture, it is so easy to be on the defensive as a follower of Jesus. But Elijah goes onto their terms saying, I'm going to take a stand for the God of Israel. And he is going to show up, clearly showing you that he's the true God. So the prophets of Baal start praying. They pray for hours on end. And they are so desperate, they start cutting themselves. Verse 27, mm -hmm. and at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is God. Either he is musing, daydreaming, or he is relieving himself on the throne of the porcelain John, or he is on a journey and perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I mean, this is holy smack talk. Mm -hmm. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Quite tenacious in prayer, don't you think? And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Although Elijah is surrounded by 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah who can't stand his guts, he's taunted them, he's, he is filled with faith. And he starts out with an invitation, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. God first had Elijah do the work of building the altar before God shows up. Elijah took 12 stones and, uh, and with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of flour, it says. So he takes 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. Even though currently a divided nation, Elijah is not just building this altar for himself or for the northern kingdom, but for the unity of Israel. Mm -hmm. See, God continues to help his people remember his promises. As Elijah rebuilds the altar stone by stone, faith begins to rise up. Elijah puts the sacrifice on the altar and then he does something crazy. He has the people douse the sacrifice with water, four jugs, and then four more jugs, and then four more jugs. Like in the middle of a three and a half year drought, imagine what these people had to go through every day just to get access to water. And the text says, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. I mean, this is like Babe Ruth pointing to the fence before he steps into the batter's box, right? Elijah steps up to the plate and goes big. Perhaps by sacrificing such a precious commodity as the water, Elijah was declaring that we can trust God with everything, the very thing that we're so desperate for. And I love Elijah's boldness in believing God. It's so different from what many of us do. Like we tend to sometimes think of God's ability as an extension of our own ability, like God is a little bit better than us on our best day. Elijah does nothing like that. He goes all out, and with his life on the line, he declares God is bigger and better than anything. Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Do you see Elijah's mm -hmm. complete dependence on that? Mm -hmm. Answer me, O Lord, he goes on, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Instead of payback, Elijah prays for the redemption of the people. Verse 38, and then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was wow. in the trench. The Lord didn't just send a little flame, but a fire that consumes everything. 
Now remember, when Elijah asked the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions earlier? They were silent. Mm -hmm. But look at their response now. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah goes to the top of Mount Carmel, kneels and prays for rain and tells a servant to look over the cliff and asks, do you see anything coming out from over the sea? No, the servant answers. And six times Elijah asks, there is nothing. It's just a cloudless sky. But then on the seventh ask, the servant sees a small cloud about the size of a man's fist. And mere hours later, an abundance of rain is pouring over the land the first time in three and a half years. So before those torrential rains come, though, Elijah tells Ahab to get on his chariot and hightail at home. Because another cool miracle, Elijah tucks up his robe and he outruns Ahab's chariots to the entrance of the capital city of Israel. Now, after such a huge victory, you can imagine Elijah is expecting a revolution. Now, the people are supposed to rise up in unity to serve the one true God. Ahab and his wicked witch of the West wife Jezebel will either repent or be deposed. Elijah is supposed to come riding into the city to a hero's welcome, with everyone singing victory in Jesus, right? Uh, then Elijah is to be given a nice house next to the palace where he can give godly guidance to the next king. But there's no revolution. Mm -mm. Jezebel's still on the throne, barking orders, ordering Elijah's death. First Kings 19, it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So Elijah went back into hiding. Elijah's high on the Mount Carmel is followed by a spiritual low, including a kind of depression. Verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah's depressed, wants to die. What he's hoped and expected would happen hasn't happened. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord and the God, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He's a bit angry with God. He's thought he knew God and what he could expect, but now he's just not so sure anymore. Elijah is on Mount Horeb, whose other name is Mount Sinai. Do you remember it's the place where God gave the Ten Commandments and made a covenant with Israel? Now, Elijah would have known that those stories that God had showed himself in thunder, fire, and earthquakes. And so we see here in verse 11, and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah experienced those other large events, yet God was not in them. Instead, he came in a small, low whisper. Now, God's voice in our lives doesn't always come in the ways we expect him to, but that doesn't mean he's not speaking. Just because God's not working like you expected him to doesn't mean that he is any less at work. So if you read on, you see God reveals to Elijah his plan. 
He's working in a pagan king Elijah has never heard of to bring judgment on Ahab and Jezebel. And God tells him he has 7,000 loyal followers in Israel. Elijah knows nothing about. He's not alone. God says to Elijah, I'm working on a plan beyond anything you could ever consider. Even if you feel like your efforts have failed and are wasted, God is always at work in bigger ways than we can imagine. Elijah had questions, just like you and I. He, had, he was despondent. He was even depressed. But he learned God was working, and he's always working, including in your situation. Now, this encourages me and all of us to be bolder in our faith. Remember, there, there's no wasted act of faithfulness. No risk you take trusting God is ever wasted. No prayer you pray goes unanswered. For many of us, we may not feel like our efforts at being a good employee is valued or your effort at being a good friend has really mattered, but it does. I'm especially reminded today how some of our moms may feel underappreciated or that all that they try to do to be a good mom doesn't seem to be making a difference. You know, Christy Jackson, who helps lead one of our small groups, um, she sent me a post on how women often didn't get to go to the mountains like we hear about today in Elijah um, because they were so busy with the ordinary everyday tasks of keeping food on the table and taking care of other people. Um, yet we have one example where we see Mary Magdalene as she went to the tomb to do the expected and maybe even ordinary task of preparing Jesus's body after his death. And that's where she met Jesus. And so the reminder that Christy was sending is in these seemingly mundane and ordinary tasks, these women of the scriptures found themselves face to face with divinity. So what an important reminder for all of us that in the day in and day out of the ordinary things that we do, we can meet God there. So how do we walk out becoming more dependent on God to be more bold in our faith? Two action steps that I'd encourage you to consider. If you're feeling depressed or anxious, there's no shame. You're right there with Elijah in this experience. One of the best ways to fight anxiety is to receive the unconditional love of God because yeah. the scripture says perfect love casts out mm -hmm. fear. That sounds nice, but how do I do that? But one way you may want to do that this week is at the beginning of your day or at the end of your day or in the, whenever you take a short time during the day to focus on God, begin it with this statement. God, I want to thank you that you love me. It's a love you don't have to earn. It's a gift. See how that statement even just affects how you pray and how you feel and how you think and read the Bible and think about God during the day. So second, since we're not on, to be on the defensive, but on the offensive, identify one way that you think God might be inviting you to be bolder in believing God in this season. Mm -hmm. How do you want to be more confident in who he is? And share that with another person. So would you pray with me? God, thank you for your power. Thank you for the fact that you are able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to your power that it's worked within us. God, I know a lot of people find themselves in difficult circumstances. Lord, I pray that you'd come and reveal your glory in a unique and powerful way in each and every circumstance. Lord, for those who are on the fence, whether or not having given their life to you at all, or on the fence about something you're asking them to do to grow in or to change, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and help us all take that step toward you right now so that our lives would glorify you and be extremely well lived. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O 
T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.